You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. That's simply a recognition of those who've served in the armed services to uh, defend and preserve the freedoms that we cherish in this nation, although we're very grateful for those of you who have served. But actually, to recognize veterans, that's the spirit of Veterans Day. Memorial Day is a holiday which was established to honor those who've died in their service of this country. On that point, since I'm a bit of a history nut, I I'd love to hear from you if any of you have family members or ancestors that have died in battle and, and uh, just the story behind that because I truly find it fascinating. I wanted to share with you a story from my family that uh, on this Memorial Day that uh, honestly, if, uh, if I hadn't experienced it, I don't know if I would believe it was true. So, if, if you struggle with believing this, understand that even if it was happening, I told my wife, who I wish could be here to confirm this, but she's a nurse and she's at the hospital because people still get sick on the holidays. And, and so she's at the hospital working this weekend, but, uh, but uh, you can ask her and it, it truly happened. Uh, one, of, one of our daughters lives in Washington, D.C., and, and she moved there in 2012, and ever since then, we, we travel to D.C. typically once a year to visit her and her husband. And on our first visit, we were, you know, just truly the tourists taking in all the monuments. And, and uh, I hadn't been to D.C. for a long time. And, and when we went in 2012, we went to see the Vietnam Wall uh, Memorial. And I, I'm just curious, how many of you have seen uh, the Vietnam Wall uh, it's really powerful. Um, it starts really small and close to the ground. I think we got a picture of it. With just and, and then it builds. And what it does is it builds to the number of casualties in any particular year of the Vietnam conflict war. And um, it, it, the, the the state park. Uh, I don't know what you call them. Uh, I sort of say soldiers, but they're not soldiers. You know who I am, the people that work there in the state park. Uh, Rangers, I think it is. But anyways, they, they, uh, they are there to help guide you. And, and, and so they pointed out to us that if there was somebody in our family that had died in Vietnam, that we could look up their name and find the panel on the wall that they're located. Well, I didn't know of anybody in my family who had served and died in Vietnam. And and yet I told Jane, I said, I really want to experience what it would be like to have a family member. And so I said, let's just find a name and, and uh, look for it. And so there was a, there was like, it's like a phone book size. And for those of you who are younger, you know, you have to go to a museum to find out what a phone book is. But, but some of us remember when we had phone books and and, you know, it was about that thick with all the names of the casualties. And so I told Jane, I said, let's find a name and find the panel. And so I, I literally just flipped through the book, and I just did this. And I kind of got 
chills when I realized where I'd pointed. I landed on a young man's name. This last name was the same as mine, Hendricks. And then here's a picture of it. You could follow and find out where a little details about that individual. And I found out that Stephen Hendricks was from my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana. And Jane said, are you related to him? And I said, I don't know of a Stephen Hendricks. But we, we went and we went to the, uh, w- the wall and found his name and there it is. And I pointed to it and took a picture of it. It was truly a moving experience to be able to live that out. The rest of the story is I came back home and visited my mom in Bloomington, uh, I think the next Memorial Day, and we went to the grave sites and visited this, the grave sites of some of, of my uh, ancestors. And when I did, they had a plaque up there of all who had died in service. And one of them was Stephen Hendricks. So I researched and found out he was a distant cousin of mine, that we share a great-great-grandfather. And I never knew him. But it made the Memorial Day holiday a lot more meaningful for me. And as hard as it believes, it really was, I think, a God incident that I could experience such a remembrance. So again, if you have such a story, I'd love to hear yours. And uh, we could share that together. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for for what a great God you are and how you show up in amazing ways, sometimes hard to even fathom. And Father, we thank you that we live in a nation that we have the freedom to gather in meetings like this, that we have the freedom to speak out what we believe. We have the freedom to worship. And there are many other freedoms that sometimes we just can take for granted. And yet we are grateful on this Memorial Day for those freedoms. And we thank you for those who've paid the ultimate price so that we could, could have those. So we'll give you thanks this weekend for that. And Father, we pray that you'll continue to be with us in, in our time of, of worship as we open up your word, as we read from a, a timeless story in Scripture. And yet, Father, we ask that you work through the telling of this story, I pray that you'll give me the ability to tell it in a concise and yet clear way. And yet, Father, I pray also that, that this story will speak into the hearts of every person here. And Father, I don't know what every person needs, but you do. And so I pray that you'll speak either encouragement, challenge, inspiration, or maybe just comfort to every person that's here today. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to go ahead and dismiss at this time uh, sixth through eighth graders, and uh, you can be making your way to our student class in the student wing. Um, and before I get into the message, I wanted to point out we have our newest members here uh, uh, today are Kyle and Sarah Brockmeyer, and they're right back here. And if you've not yet met Kyle and Sarah, make sure you do. Um, wonderful couple, and we're thrilled to have them. Part of Southwest. Well, during the uh, past two weeks, we've been examining the fascinating story of enduring hope in the short but powerful book of Ruth found in the Bible. 
Now, as a way of review, if you've missed our first two weeks of this series, let me just real quickly and briefly review what we've covered so far. During our first week, we learned that Naomi was a Jewish woman from Bethlehem who, as a result of a famine in her homeland, traveled to a foreign country with her husband and two sons. Over the course of time, her sons married women in that foreign country of Moab. And unfortunately, in a 10-year period of time, Naomi's husband and two sons all died. Eventually, Naomi traveled back to Bethlehem, which had recovered from the earlier famine period, with one of her two daughter-in-laws, a young woman named Ruth. In fact, if you're trying to make sense of the, the timing, you hear Bethlehem, you think of the birth of Jesus. This was 1,100 years before Jesus was born. We learned last week that in an amazing way, God was at work anonymously in these God incidences or a good definition for coincidences, as, as I shared in my story at the Vietnam Wall. But God worked in Ruth's story to have Ruth, who was a woman of impeccable character, find food in the field of one of Naomi's relatives, a guy named Boaz. As we'll see even more clearly this week, Boaz is a man of integrity who takes care of Ruth and makes sure that the workers in his fields treat her with proper respect and protect her from harm. With this said, as we wrap up our time of review, let's wrap up by reviewing, uh, excuse me, reading the ending of Ruth chapter 2 when we read these words in verse 17 through 23. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she'd worked. She said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Skipping down to verse 23. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. In this reading from uh, the ending of chapter 2, we're introduced to this beautiful term that's only found in Ruth in all the Bible. It's this term, family redeemer, as the New Living Translation reads, or some older translations read, kinsman redeemer. It's a beautiful term. This is a term that is describing both the responsibility and privilege of a Jewish male to take care of the widow of a deceased relative, which we'll explain more fully later in the development of chapter 3. But as we prepare to transition to chapter 3, we, we see that a stage is set for an amazing love story a love story that I believe is even more powerful than the love described in the recent royal wedding. And in case you missed last weekend's moving royal wedding, here's a quick excerpt. Now, it's not going to be the hours the TV showed, okay? Just two minutes excerpt of this fascinating 
speech by Michael Curry. From the Song of Solomon in the Bible. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it out. The late Dr. Martin Luther King once said, and I quote, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world. For love, love is the only way. There's power in love. Don't underestimate it. Don't even over-sentimentalize it. There's power, power in love. If you don't believe me, think about a time when you first fell in love. The whole world seemed to center around you and your beloved. Oh, there's power, power in love not just in its romantic forms, but any form, any shape of love. There's a certain sense in, in which when you are loved and you know it, when someone cares for you and you know it, when you love and you show it, it actually feels right. There's something right about it. And there's a reason for it. The reason has to do with the source. We were made by a power of love. And our lives were meant and are meant to be lived in that love. That's why we, were, we are here. Ultimately, the source of love is God himself. The source of all of our lives. There's an old medieval poem that, that says, where true love is found. God himself is there. I love that description of redemptive love that uh, Michael Curry shared. And I loved how he said that when you find real love, God is there. And I believe we see God clearly portrayed in the book of Ruth. Now, if you watch the entire video, which, by the way, you can uh, Google on YouTube and find uh, his entire 13-minute speech, you'll see that some of the celebrities in the royal family didn't quite know how to act. As uh, one person commented, Bishop Curry took them to church, okay? And yet, as he described the power of love and the ultimate source of this type of pure love, we're brought back to God's description of loving, redeeming kindness, this is a type of love we see on display in the story of Ruth. In chapter 3, we see that Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, shares with Ruth a risky plan. Let's read about it in 
Ruth 3, verse 1, it says, One day Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you'll be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now, do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the the instructions of her mother-in-law. Now, this truly is a fascinating and yet very risky plan that Naomi gives her daughter-in-law, Ruth. As one writer asked, what could go wrong with Naomi's plan? Just about everything, okay? Now, I've read numerous commentators trying to discern the cultural significance of this elaborate plan. Some commentators delve into the sexual connotations of this risky, or some might even say risque, plan. As some describe the danger of Ruth being mistaken as a prostitute approaching Boaz for other reasons. And yet some writers minimize that aspect of the story. And yet it's impossible to ignore the sexual tension that exists in this story between Ruth and Boaz. With all that said... Naomi does seek to reduce the risk for Ruth by encouraging her to go immediately after the evening meal so he'll be rested in good spirits, to go at dusk so she won't be recognized by others or even Boaz initially. Ultimately, Naomi is placing great confidence in Boaz's character and his integrity, that he will not take advantage of Ruth, but he will treat her with love respect, and dignity. Yes, Boaz has commendable character that was noteworthy in his day 3,000 years ago, but it's also commendable in any generation. And honestly, in light of the recent revelations of sexual misbehavior, harassment, and even abuse that we hear almost nightly in the news from individuals in the public eye, I think Boaz's integrity should be studied and imitated today. I don't know about you, but personally, I I told my wife this past week with yet another high-profile person being accused of sexual misconduct uh, that I'm just growing weary of the constant barrage of these news stories. Now, don't get me wrong. I I believe all individuals who, who... use their power or position to take advantage of another person spiritually, emotionally, or physically, I believe they should be held accountable and their actions even brought to light. Yet I long for examples of people, and specifically, I'm going to be really honest with you today, I'm, I'm longing for examples of men of influence who use their influence not to take advantage of another, but to benefit others. Individuals who practice self-control. Individuals who treat others as they would like to be treated. 
We need more men who practice faithfulness, sexual purity, self-restraint, and personal integrity. I want to be such a man. And I want to call other men in this church to be men of integrity. This world needs such men. Men who have the character of Boaz. Let's be a church that takes our cues from characters of faith and integrity like Boaz and Ruth. Now with that said, let's transition to our second point in which we'll see that Ruth executes a modified plan. It's a modified plan from what Naomi had first told her. Now, let's first of all look at that word execute. I, I thought carefully about what word to use here, and I, I thought execute, I think, sums it up. It, the word execute means to carry out or put into effect a plan, an order, or a course of action. Now, this observation on this word gives me an opportunity to revisit something that we announced earlier this year. You see, earlier this spring, we announced that our current student minister, Andrew Beale, who's been serving with us for a number of years, will be transitioning later this year into an executive role here at Southwest. He's not going anywhere. He's staying here at Southwest, but he's going to be transitioning to an to an executive role. Now, some have asked, what does that mean? Well, first of all, he's not going to execute people, okay? So, relax, okay? Uh, and, and some have asked me, is he going to become my boss? Well, I don't think so, but, uh, uh, but I do want to learn from him because he has gifts and talents in areas I know that I lack. Andrew really is gifted in the area of administration and being able to put into place systems to carry out plans. And we think that's really important for us as a church at our point in history and our point in growth. You see, We have really come to a point where we say we really believe God's given us a clear vision. We've called it our 2020 vision that we want to focus on the next three years through the year 2020. And that's to be a church that's very intentional about bridging the gap to those without Jesus so that no one has to live without hope. We talked about that last weekend in our message, but we also talked about it in our leadership retreat. And we talked about we're six months in, and although we've done some things, we don't feel like we've really made the traction that we want to make in this area. And so we're looking forward to Andrew being able to devote his full time to helping us as a church more effectively implement this vision and a course of action and and a strategic plan that will follow. So I want to encourage you to be praying for him as he transitions that role and that we can really live out that vision statement. Of course, we want you to be praying for the person that we're going to be hiring to be our next student minister who will lead our junior high and high school ministry. We've been encouraged. Uh, I've shared before, but we've received 66 resumes submitted Uh, of individuals that say, we'd love to come and work with this church and lead the student ministry. And we've we've been working our way through those 66 resumes, and we've come to a point where two candidates have really surfaced as as we believe that our primary candidates. And so we're hoping to bring them in and meet the other leaders in the church over the next um, couple weeks in the month of June, and we hope uh, to be able to keep sharing with you updates on that. So continue to pray 
that God will lead just the right person to come and lead our student ministry into the future. And with all that said, let's read how Ruth executes a slightly different plan than Naomi had shared with her. And in fact, as we read this, I want you to ask yourself, what is it that Ruth modified from what Naomi had told her previously? Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3, it says, After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Now, first of all, I believe as is, is he, maybe I'm reading a little bit into the text, but I believe there's evidence here that Boaz was an older man than Ruth, who was probably still in her 20s. You might say, well, what's the evidence from this text that Boaz is older? Well, he wakes up at midnight. Now, <laughs> the text doesn't say he wakes up to go to the bathroom, but I'm reading that into that, okay? Now, for those of you younger, you don't even know what I'm talking about, okay? But I've heard that that can happen as you get a little older. And yet we know that Boaz is still young enough to work a full day and sleep on the threshing floor with the other workers. Possibly this shows Boaz, who we learned last week was a man of standing, of wealth and influence, and yet he's willing to identify with the working people that he employed. He's one who's out among the people. He was that kind of guy. And he's startled to find that Ruth is lying at his feet. Now, I'm curious, did you notice the manner that Ruth modifies Naomi's plan? What was it? You see, Naomi told Ruth just to wait and that Boaz would tell her what to do next. But instead, we see that Ruth boldly asked Boaz to spread the corner of your covering over me and to serve as her family redeemer. Now, in our time and culture, this seems like an odd request. And yet, if the text would have been written today, Ruth might have said, Boaz, it's time to put a ring on the finger. Or maybe she would have said, it's time to quit procrastinating, I'm waiting for my diamond. Now, in other cultures, they might not understand what that means, but we do. But as you study and try to research the culture that day, Ruth is seeking a wedding proposal. We'll see from Boaz's response that Ruth isn't propositioning him as a brazen prostitute would. Instead, She's boldly proposing that they get married and for Boaz to serve as her kinsman redeemer. You see, Ruth has modified the plan. It shows her boldness, her faith in God's provision, and her true enduring hope that the Lord was going to provide a redeemer for her in her truly desperate situation as a widow in that culture. Now, interestingly, last week, Boaz commended Ruth for taking refuge under the God of Israel's wings among the people of Bethlehem. 
This week we see that Ruth boldly asked for Boaz to spread his wings and extend to her as a foreign widow the cover and protection that would come to her being his wife. And finally, in response, we see in verse 10 that, yes, Boaz shows redemptive love. Verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You're showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there's another man who's more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well. Let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. Once again, we see the purity of Ruth's request and her action. As Boaz describes her as a noble and virtuous woman, using the same language that the proverb writer would use in Proverbs 31. He specifically mentions her virtue that she didn't go after a younger man, but was loyal to family lines and approached instead the older Boaz. And then from his wording in verse 13 in the original language, we see that Boaz invites her to find safe lodging there in the threshing floor. Now next week, we'll see how this love story continues to unfold and the lasting significance of this upcoming marriage between Ruth and Boaz. And you have to come back next week to find out how significant of a couple they were in human history. And yet this week, we want to conclude by focusing on Boaz's willingness to serve as Ruth's family or kinsman redeemer. You see, the word redeemer is not a word that we use often in our 21st century century culture. Outside of church, I'm not sure if you hear that word a lot today. And yet, we still see vestiges in our culture today. Probably the best example, at least that I could think of, is what is sometimes called a redemption ticket that someone receives when they visit a pawn shop. Now, I want to make sure that you understand what I just said because I have a Hoosier accent. I didn't say porn shop. I said pawn shop, okay, like that. I want to make sure you understand what I said here. Now, although fortunately I've never needed to revert to visiting or taking advantage of the services of a pawn shop, but here's how I understand it. If you're going through a rough time in life and in desperation, you need some extra cash. Maybe it's to pay for the rent, buy groceries, or pay some medical bills. You can take a prized possession of yours and take it to the pawn shop. And the pawn shop owner will give you cash for the immediate for that prized item. They, in turn, will give you a redemption ticket that you will have a certain amount of time that, that they won't sell the item to anybody else. This allows you to go back to the store and 
pay the redemption amount so that you can retrieve the item. In Ruth's day, the Jewish people had a redemption system that a family member could buy back someone else who was in a desperate situation. Possibly it was someone who sold their land or even possibly themselves into slavery to pay a debt that they couldn't pay from their resources. Or in Ruth's case, a widow who did not have the means in that culture to provide a living for herself. And in such situation, a kinsman redeemer would marry her to provide for her and her family. You see, a kinsman redeemer would buy back the land, the individual, or in this case, marry the widow to provide a brighter future for that individual that they couldn't provide for themselves. I love this closing scene of chapter 3. As Boaz tells Ruth, just stay here. Wait. Don't worry. I'm going to make preparations to make sure that you are redeemed. This is one of the many reasons that I love this book of Ruth. Because in this story, we see a beautiful description of redemptive love. We see a beautiful description of pure, genuine love between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And between Ruth and Boaz who end up becoming this very significant couple in history. And yet, in conclusion, we see in the midst of all this a beautiful description of what it means to be redeemed. Boaz ends up offering redemption for this desperate foreign woman, Ruth. And... As I conclude my thoughts on Ruth and Boaz, I want to circle back to the royal wedding sermon and how Michael Curry concluded his wedding remarks. He said, Dr. King was right. We must discover love, the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world. You see, in many ways, the story of Ruth waiting for Boaz to provide redemption, a redemption she couldn't provide for herself, is a foreshadowing of someone who would later be born in the town she was in, Bethlehem, that would bring redemption for all who find themselves in a desperate way. You see, if we're really honest with ourselves, we've all done stuff in our past where we have sold away, traded away our integrity, our purity, and even at times our dignity for the satisfaction of the immediate, for the pleasure of sin. And what's, what's frustrating when you realize that you've done that in your life There's that human tendency to think, well, is there something I can do to make up for my past mistakes? Is there something I can do to make up for my my sin of the past? And the truth of it is, if any of you have tried to do that, 
you know how frustrating that is because the more good you try to do, you think, yeah, but I've been pretty bad and I don't know if I've done enough good yet. And, and then you think of something else you've done or you, you fall back into an old habit and you think, well, I've got to do more good. It's, it's just this rat race of thinking, am I ever going to be good enough? It's wearisome. I've lived that way before. Maybe you have. Maybe you are now. God has a better plan. His plan was to send his son to provide lasting redemption. This is how later the Bible describes it for followers of Jesus. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. As we close out this time of reading from Scripture and thinking about redemption, how appropriate to close with a time of communion and to remember the redemption that Jesus brings to us. And as we take the bread, we're reminded of the body of Christ and the sacrifice he made. And as we take the cup, we're reminded of the blood of Jesus that was shed so that we could truly find redemption, forgiveness. And yet, on this Memorial Day weekend, I want to urge you during this time of communion to, to think about how that you in and of yourself are powerless to redeem yourself. Think about a time in the past or maybe for some of you a time in the present, maybe how you feel today, where you just feel desperate. There's something going on in life. Maybe you can think back to a time previous where you just felt desperate and powerless to change your course of life. Let's celebrate during this time of communion a Savior who came from heaven, who died on a cross to redeem us, to buy us back from our past so that we could have a brighter future. And let's give thanks in our heart for the redemption that we can have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for this incredible plan of redemption, of sending your son to this earth. And thank you for how you leave clues in in the Old Testament centuries before Jesus came of, of how you had a plan in mind, a plan of redemption. So we thank you for how we see that in the story of Ruth. And, and yet we thank you for how we see it more fully in the person of Jesus. Help us during this time of communion to really humbly acknowledge confess and admit to you how desperate we are without you and how we can't fix ourselves, how we can't forgive ourselves, how we can't buy back our past. But thank you that Jesus came to do all that for us. Help us just to soak up his redemptive love during this time of communion. It's in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. 
We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 p.m.